Our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in, in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Please pray with me. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, Thank you for the promises especially that you attach to it. Uh, that uh, these are words of life. Uh, Thank you for the Holy Spirit that applies uh, the gospel to our hearts. Would you do that this morning? Would you take this word um, and apply it to our hearts in such a way uh, that we would give you glory and that it would bear much fruit in our life to the good of our neighbor and to the good of this city? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you, uh, if you caught it a couple of months ago, the Antiques Roadshow came to Santa Fe. Um, I actually went, had a couple of things, and uh, it spent most of the day standing in line, um, which, which was actually a lot more fun than it sounds. Um, uh, I, made, I made some new friends, got to know some people, and, you know, we got to talk about the things that we brought uh, to be appraised. And, you know, and in my time there, and I was basically there all day, um, it, it seemed to me that there were two kinds of people. There, there were people who came out looking for validation, and then there were people who came out looking for information. Um, the people looking for validation, you know, basically were like convinced that they had this unbelievable treasure that somehow, you know, the, the Museum of Modern Art hadn't gotten its hands on yet in New York, you know. And then there were people who, who just kind of showed up and you know, had this thing they were curious about, and they wanted to know if, you know, is it worth anything? And, and you know, that kind of is the drama of the show, if you've ever seen it on, on TV. Um, you know, the drama of one person coming in with a, 
what they are sure is, a tr is treasure, only to find out it's trash, and the drama of the person who thinks they have trash only to discover it's actually treasure. Now, the passage we're looking at this morning, you know, I think hinges on this, th that kind of issue. You know, what is actually really and truly valuable? Now, the, it begins with this person running up to Jesus. Jesus is setting off on a trip, and this, this person runs up with a question. And the person who runs up to Jesus we, is popularly known as the rich young ruler because Matthew tells us he's young, uh, Luke tells us he's a ruler, and everybody says he's rich. But, you know, Mark typically in his economy of language just refers to him at first as a man. And he engages Jesus with all the customary manners. He, he kneels before him. He addresses him with this kind of honorific title. He calls him good teacher. And then he asks this question. And, and it's not just a question. It's, it's really the question, isn't it? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, at the same time, the question isn't as earth-shattering as we might think it is, because this is a question any devout Jew would, would basically know the answer to. This is, this is the, an ABC, one, two, three, you know, Sunday school kind of question. And the answer to what must I do to inherit eternal life is follow God's law and don't sin. Do the stuff the Bible tells you to do. And don't do the stuff the Bible tells you not to do. Everyone knows that. So, you know, I think what's remarkable isn't so much his question, but the fact that he's still asking it. Uh, he knows the answer, but he's not satisfied with the answer. His question, in other words, I think reveals a restlessness in him. And, and that is amazing when you consider who this person is. This is the last person in the world who should be restless about anything. He's young, he's rich, he's important, he's good-looking. Well, the Bible doesn't say he's good-looking, but he's good-looking. We know that. And yet, you know, he can't even get comfortable with and come to terms with the most basic answer to the most basic question he's known his whole life, how to receive eternal life. And Jesus, you know, doesn't answer that question not right away anyway. Instead, he asks his own question. It's kind of a weird question at first. It seems like he wants to talk about manners. It begins with, well, why do you call me good? And, and that's, you know, uh, that would have been, I think, considered a little bit rude on Jesus' part. Because the young man is just following the, the conventional social script. He, he calls Jesus good teacher, and the expectation is, is that Jesus would say, you know, how can I help you, good sir? You know, so, so when Jesus kind of begins there and goes, why do you call me good, you know, why do you call me good? It's a bit like shaking hands with somebody who's asking you a question. You go, you know, before we get to your question, can we talk about the handshake? Could have been a little firmer. But as Jesus continues, it becomes clear he's interested in, in something more than manners. He, uh, because he follows uh, that question with a statement. And the statement is, God alone is good. Uh, and we need to be clear right off the bat what Jesus isn't saying. First of all, he's not saying that he's not good. Um, he doesn't say, you know, hey man, don't call me good. Only God is good. Instead, he, he's, he's interested in why the man has called him good. He's not, in other words, refuting kind of the nature of his own goodness. He, 
is interested in inquiring into this man's notion of goodness. And that's really critical. And that actually shows us that he's, he is taking this man's question very seriously uh, about what it means to inherit eternal life because you can't begin to engage on what's required to receive eternal life until you reckon with that. What does it mean to be good? What do you, what do you understand by goodness? So Jesus seizes on that. He states the truth. No one is good except God, and he immediately pivots uh, to the Ten Commandments and, and states them. Do not murder. Do not, do not commit adultery. Don't steal. Bear false witness. Defraud. Um, honor your father and mother. And, and it's interesting because Jesus is, of course, quoting the Ten Commandments here, uh, but he's quoting you know, a particular part of the Ten Commandments we call the second table of the law, which is the part of the law that really focuses on how we relate to one another. The first four commandments generally deal with kind of the vertical relationship, your, your duty owed to God under the law, and then the implications of that are the rest of the law, what that looks like with your neighbor. Um, so, you know, again, they, they're still kind of discussing what looks like the ABCs of the faith. You know, Jesus just reminding him of commandments he, he surely knows, you know, um, but Jesus isn't just doing kind of abstract theology. He's doing applied theology. He's, he's asking the man point blank, you know, have you stolen? Have you committed fraud? Have you lied? Have you killed? Have you honored your parents? Um, and the man's quick with an answer. He just says, teacher, I've kept these all my life. Now, no doubt Jesus could have challenged that answer <laughs> um, as he could with anyone. But, but Mark doesn't tell us he accepts it or rejects it, uh, we're told actually that Jesus looks at the man and loves him. Um, Jesus is not so concerned with the response as he is with the relationship. Uh, but critically, he doesn't leave, him, leave it there. Uh, Jesus loves people well, and he loves that. He, he loves um, by both accepting him as he is and challenging him. Uh, he challenges him by telling him, you lack one thing. Of course, you know, Jesus in one sense is telling him something he already knows. I mean, why, why else would he have run up to Jesus? Of course he knows he lacks one thing. That's why he came up here. He's restless. He knows that despite everything, he, he's missing something. And so, you know, and again, it's kind of amazing because here's this religiously devoted guy, religiously successful, reputationally successful, materially successful, still deeply restless. So you can imagine when Jesus says, you lack one thing, he's going, yes. He leans in, his eyes are widening, tell me what it is, and I'll do it. So Jesus tells him, go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Now, some have taken this to be, you know, an indication that Jesus uh, is uh, taking kind of a swipe at wealth, um, and certainly having wealth comes with all kinds of challenges. Um, the Bible bears that out. But critically, Jesus doesn't say, you know, get rid of your wealth so that you can enter the higher spirituality. You know, renounce the, your riches and take the vows of poverty, and then you're set. J Jesus isn't so much challenging money. Um, he's challenging a religious matrix by which this man lives his life. Um, he's still in fact, talking about and exploring this man's notion of goodness, and he's challenging it. 
uh, even though by any conventional standard, the man is exceedingly good. You know, I mean, we all live in Santa Fe. Some of us, you know, have some challenging neighbors. This would not be one of them. This would be the guy you would want buying the house next door that's gone on the market. He'd pick up the dog poop. He'd keep his yard real nice. You know, everything would be great. That's who this guy is. He is exceedingly good. And not only is he good, but he's reaped the rewards commensurate with that goodness, even, even as the one thing eludes him. And so Jesus is saying, if you, if you want that nagging restless to leave you, restlessness to leave you, if you, want to, if you want real security, real freedom, real life, eternal life, you must renounce that which is in your life, which promises those things, and yet has failed to deliver. Your wealth. Now, what Jesus is doing here is calling him to repentance. That, that's, that's the basic thing he's doing. He's saying, turn from the false trusts and turn to the living God. Uh, he's, urging, he's urging that. But, but we need to appreciate how weird it is, how strange it is in this particular uh, story. This, we're in some strange territory because it doesn't look like Jesus is urging him to repent of sin. We're used to that. You know, and in fact, upon direct examination, when he brings up the law into the conversation, the man says, I've kept the law ever since I was a kid. So what's the problem? I mean, it'd be one thing, right? If Jesus found out, you know, if the man said, well, you know, I have not been faithful to my wife. You know, we, we've got a category for that. We'll repent of that. Turn to the Lord. It'd be one thing if Jesus discovered he was a lying, thieving, adulterous, murderous rebel. But he is the furthest thing from that. So, you know, here's a guy going to the right place. He goes to Jesus. He's asking all the right questions, asking about eternal life. Not only knowledgeable of the law, but, but seemingly obedient to it, seemingly reverent toward it. Uh, but we've still got a problem. And Jesus still calls him to repentance. You know, so even though Jesus doesn't take the possession of great wealth in and of itself as sinful, and we're going to say more about this later, he does call him to be rid of it. He calls him to turn from it and follow him. It looks at first for all the world that Jesus is calling someone not to repent of sin, but of success. That's weird. But here's the deal, you know, in a sense, he is asking him to do that because there is a kind of success that is freighted with the idea that under my own powers and by way of my own virtue, I have attained a life for myself. You know, even as I might tip the hat to God, even as, as, even as I do all the religious things, even as I express the reverence, even as I gain the admiration of my community. So when Jesus says, go and sell all you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, come and follow me, He's not, you know, calling him to attain goodness by way of poverty. That would, that would simply be to replace one failed way of self-saving with another clearly failed way of self-saving, right? It would be to establish a self-righteousness rooted in poverty instead of a self-righteousness rooted in wealth. So Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus' basic position on wealth is that it's there's no more inherent vice in having wealth any more than there's inherent virtue in being poor. But he's zeroing in on the wealth and the success that has come with it because it's making this man poor, <laughs> spiritually poor. 
It is the one thing, uh, as he said, it's the one thing standing in his way of coming into far greater riches. He's pressing him, in other words, to imagine a relationship with God without the wealth. Money, gone. Power, gone. Prestige, gone. You know, imagine that life. Imagine a life in which all you've got is a life-giving relationship with the Lord and following Jesus. What then? You know, would that be enough for you? Can, you? can you imagine it not only as being enough, but actually as better than what you have now? So, so what Jesus is doing here is confronting the idol. He's, he's confronting a false god. It, it, so, so, you know, despite all the outward appearances, this man is in great danger. Just, you know, which is why Jesus calls him to renounce the wealth, because the rewards that come with material wealth and prosperity and influence and reputation have, be, have become his functional God, in which he has placed all his trust and all his faith and up, upon which his whole life is centered. And you know that from the response. In fact, the man never utters another word, but he does answer Jesus. Uh, Mark tells us what that answer is. He goes away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Uh, now, the word sorrowful doesn't quite capture it. Um, it would be better to say that he went away deeply grieving. Uh, grieving like someone who just found out that his best friend has died. Uh, you, you get a sense of the intensity of the word and of the intensity of what this man is going through when you learn that that is the exact same word used to describe Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he went to the cross. Um, the young man's grief here, and I think Jesus' grief there, forms a helpful kind of informative parallel here because even though J Jesus was certainly grieving you know, the imminent cessation of his life, the thing he was really grieving, the thing that caused him to sweat drops of blood wasn't the end of life. It was separation. Separation from his father on the cross. Jesus understood that going to the cross would mean losing, in other words, the life-giving center of his own life. As he would come to bear the wrath of God, you know, on the cross for us and our sin. So in that sense, he grieved knowing that he'd lose more than his life. He would lose himself, if you could put it that way. And the rich young ruler goes away grieving for the exact same reason. He understood that what Jesus is asking him to give up is the very center of his life. And, and look, you know, few of us have been confronted, you know, quite this directly as Jesus confronts this man here. But, but I want to say, I think we're familiar with this. And, and we're familiar in this way. Maybe you've heard someone said or you've thought or you've said yourself, if I ever lost, you know, fill in the blank, my, my child, my, my spouse, my parents, my career, my reputation, my financial stability, whatever that is, I'm not sure I could go on living. You know, what are we saying when we say that? We are saying that I've got a center to my life, and should I lose it, life would be effectively over for me. If that, if that were to ever go away, so would I. And if that thing at the center, that thing that, to which we secure our life, is not the one true and living God, it is what the Bible calls an idol. An idol is simply 
the functional God, a functional fake God that doesn't have life in itself, that will readily and happily take up residence at your center, in your heart, convincing you that it's life, using you as its host, sucking the life out of you like a parasite. So Jesus loved the man, and he put his finger on his functional God and said, kill it, turn from it, it's killing you. And tragically, the young man does not do that because he is convinced, that's my life. And the suggestion that he would kill it brings about grief, right? Now, earlier, Jesus went to the second table of the law in his exchange with the man, but now you really see the first table of the law kind of come into view, don't you? Uh, Without Jesus even having to articulate it, because despite the man's testimony that he's kept the law since his youth, it's clear he hasn't even kept the first commandment in the last 15 seconds. He's shown that, that, you know, he hasn't... um, that that despite how he's managed to navigate life with a kind of righteousness, he he does not have a life in which he is honoring and worshiping God alone. He is doing what every religion and worldview and philosophy in the world will tell you to do. Don't do the bad stuff and do the good stuff. But the gospel is radically different because it begins by showing you however good you may think you, you are, however much admiration the world may throw at you, you're a lawbreaker. You haven't kept the first commandment for 15 seconds. The gospel begins with that, begins with the message that you haven't kept the rules your whole life, that you haven't kept them for 15 seconds, and that not only that, but your goodness can be a problem in the sense that it can be that thing that you imagine is the source of your success, which has gotten you life, And it has this immense capacity to blind you to the fundamental truth of what Jesus has just said. God alone is good. We can easily become convinced that the good that has come to me has come from me, not from a gracious God. Marilyn Robinson, one of my favorite writers, I'll commend her to you. My wife knows this. I call her the other woman in my life. Um, I just love her writing. Uh, She reflects extensively on this in a a really excellent essay called Puritans and Prigs. It's just a, it is a extensive reflection on the reform doctrine of total depravity, which means you're a real sinner. And and in that, she makes this observation. She says, in fact, life makes goodness much easier for some people than others. And it is rich with varieties of cautious, or bland or malign goodness in the Bible referred generally as self-righteousness and invade against as grievous offenses in their own right. The belief that we are all sinners, on the other hand, gives us excellent grounds for forgiveness and self-forgiveness and is kindlier than any expectation that we might be saints, even while it affirms the standards all of us fail to affirm, attain rather. So as we're seeing in this rich young ruler, you know, it's not merely sin, but a kind of success that is standing in his way of a life-giving relationship with God. It's not merely wretchedness, but it's self-righteousness that keeps you from eternal life. For the simple reason that nothing will keep you from accepting the truth that God alone is good as much as convincing yourself that you're good all on your own. 
Now, you know, you can only imagine what the disciples are thinking about at this point. I mean, here's this guy with this great reputation, immense resources, certainly tons of connections. We're getting this religious movement going, Jesus. Why are you not pouncing on this guy? You know, at least have him fill out a visitor card so we can follow up. You know, I'm sure they just thought, Jesus, you're being too hard on him. And, and it's clear that Jesus is aware of their concerns because before they even have a chance to say anything about it, he turns to them and says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And he illustrates that statement with, you know, probably, you know, I would say arguably his most vivid metaphors. You could probably walk out on the plaza in Santa Fe, grab somebody and ask them if they've ever heard it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they may well say, yeah, I've heard of that before. And, and, you know, that was a controversial statement then. It is a controversial statement now. And as with many controversial statements in the Bible, there's no shortage, of, no shortage of interpretive gymnastics to try to explain what Jesus means. Um, you know, a famous one is that Jerusalem was surrounded with walls. Maybe you've heard these, you know, and the gates were so narrow and low. You know, they got to get the camel in, but they had to offload all the goods in order to, to you know, get the camel through the gate. And maybe you've also heard the other one about, you know, well, one of those gates is called the eye of the needle. It was especially, you know, tight squeeze for the camel to get through. And those explanations are really helpful, except for the fact they're totally untrue. Another one, you know, is that the Aramaic word for camel sounds like twine. Maybe what Jesus was really saying here was not camel, but twine. And he's just saying, you know, Everybody knows, you know, you can get a thread through the eye of a needle, but twine, it's a lot harder. I mean, doable, but really challenging. Again, I think that stretches credulity. Um, so I, I just want to propose we do something a little crazy this morning and take Jesus at his word. That, that, you know, consider the possibility that he actually means what he says for a minute. You know, stay with me. You know, like maybe he's making a vivid and forceful metaphor using that to make a vivid and forceful point. You know, so, and, and maybe it's helpful for us to translate the camel in the eye of the needle thing into our own vernacular to say something like, you know, um, a, a rich person's prospects of getting into heaven is, is something like when pigs fly. You know, when hell freezes over. It's got, you know, that person has a snowball's chance in hell. Okay, and, and I detect some squirming in the pews. <laughs> You know, but before you go looking for another church, please hang in with me for a second. If you're wondering how Jesus could say such a thing, you know, first off, you're in good company because that's exactly how the disciples felt. You know, they are described as amazed and utterly amazed uh, at Jesus' words. Uh, they, they couldn't believe he'd ever say such a thing. Um, and... and Let's appreciate a rare moment in the Bible because the disciples are completely tracking with Jesus. They totally get it. They, they, they understand what he's saying and they ask exactly the right question. And the question is this, who then can be saved? If a commandment-keeping, charismatic, God-enthusiastic, Jesus-honoring, world-beater cannot be saved, who in the world can we're just a bunch of, you know, schlub uh, fishermen from Galilee. Like, if you say that's true, if, if, if what you say is true, it's not just the wealthy that are in trouble. They're saying, we're all in trouble. 
It'd be one thing for you to say that commandment breakers can't get into the kingdom of heaven. We all get that. But what do you, what do, you do with the idea that it's not just a, the rule-breaking worst who can't get into heaven, but guys like this, the very best rule-keeping successes among us? What do you do when you find out that even those people are idolaters too, that they're more sinful and broken and needy and wounded and, and wanting than, than anyone ever imagined they were? They've asked exactly the right question. They've come to exactly the right conclusion. And the conclusion is this. Salvation is a lot harder than you think. You know, and if you think you can attain salvation or even approach beginning to attain it by anything you do, by, by your riches, whether they're riches in your bank account or riches of your rule keeping, then salvation is indeed a when pigs fly, when hell freezes over, snowball's chance in hell proposition. It will never, ever happen that way. And Jesus' intent that we know that it is simply impossible for you to enter into the kingdom of heaven in that way. It doesn't matter how moral you are. It doesn't matter how mannered you are, how admired, how philanthropic. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Presbyterian, what a great family you come from, how much you've volunteered, how much you've done. No one is further along than anyone else. Approach coming into the kingdom in terms of what you have done, can do, will do, and the door will be locked. But the good news is this, and Jesus says it, that God through his son Jesus Christ is in the business of doing the impossible. Entering the kingdom of heaven requires a radical work of resurrecting grace that's available to everyone. A miracle of grace that raises those who were dead in their sins and trespasses to newness of life by faith in Jesus. That is what a Christian is. All Christians. If you ever tell your testimony, it ought to begin with, I was dead in my sins and trespasses. And Jesus raised me to newness of life, and then I came to faith. Those who have come into the kingdom, come into the kingdom by a miracle. A miracle of grace which results in turning and trusting. And Jesus has come to do that radical work of grace to perform just that miracle in his person and his work. And apart from him, it's impossible. Snowball's chance in hell. Apart from him, no one can be saved. That's what he's saying. It's a truth so vital that Jesus reiterates it. And, and, and he says it again, but he's, he adds a detail a second time that he hasn't yet said in this gospel and he won't say again he calls his disciples themselves children. He's talked a lot about children. We saw in the passage before this, he invited the children to come to him. He said, don't hinder them, for, such belongs to, for, for to such belongs what? The kingdom of heaven. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Um, I, I don't know if, if you noticed it, but he puts it in the positive and negative. Positively, he issues the invitation, come like a child. And negatively, he says, if you don't come like a child, you'll never know God's gracious rule in your life. You'll never enter the kingdom. He's both reiterating his point about wealth and reminding them of what he's shown them already about the position one must take to come to his kingdom, that, that of a child. And here's the thing about children. They don't have their own resources. They don't have resumes. They, they have no clue about money. 
They, they, they aren't great at knowing the rules, much less at keeping the rules. They don't wring their hands about paying bills. They don't worry about how to maximize their returns. They don't earn anything because everything is earned for them. And they, they receive all the benefits. What children do better, in other words, than anyone is rely on the care and the support and the life of another. They're great at that. They rest in relationship. They rely on their parents for everything. Grown-ups, on the other hand, begin to imagine as they grow up that they are self-made, that they are self-sufficient, that they are successful. They imagine, we imagine, with a little more wealth and a few more possessions and you know, just a bit more of whatever, everything will be okay and I'll get life. And Jesus is saying, that'll kill you. You try to secure your own life, you try to live out of your own resources, you lock yourself out of the kingdom. You know, I've wondered this week, you know, if the man really heard everything Jesus had said to him, like if you really heard him, I mean, Jesus says a lot, but you know, did he only hear, go sell all you have and give it to the poor without hearing you will have treasure in heaven. Like, did he, did he choose hanging on to his stuff more than having the treasure in heaven? Did he hear that Jesus actually never asks him to lose wealth? Did he hear Jesus urging him to come into wealth? It's, it was only really by the end of the story that I, I circled back to this man's question and came to fully appreciate it because because his question is this, what, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And that is a question that contains a deep contradiction, right? A contradiction, I think, that lies at the heart of kind of our, our sinful condition, which is, you know, what, that, that we would work so hard to earn that which God is glad to give away. That, that we would so tightly hang on to that which is killing us, you know, because the man wants to know what he must do to receive an inheritance. Since when has anyone done anything to receive an inheritance? You know, no one goes out and gets a job and says, you know, I'm here to receive my inheritance. You work for wages, but the way you come into an inheritance is to receive it not through the rigors of your labor, but through a relationship of love. Children, not employees, receive an inheritance. Jesus is intent to know that there is an inheritance for his children. And the more you imagine you can work for it and earn it, the surer you are to never receive it. You know, you've got greater prospects of success doing that than shoving a camel through the eye of a needle. It can't be earned, but it is God's good pleasure to give it away. There's more required to attain it, to attain salvation, entry into the kingdom, than any of us could ever give. But Jesus gave it with his own life. That's the other thing about receiving an inheritance. Someone has to die. And Jesus did that, not for himself, but for us, giving all of himself on the cross, saving us from our sinful striving by earning all of God's righteousness. Righteousness under God's law for us and saving us from, all our, from our rebellious rule-keeping by bearing all of God's wrath for sin on the cross for us. Freeing us from self-saving rule-breaking on the one hand and self-saving rule-keeping on the other. 
so that we would come to him as children, relying on grace alone by faith in Christ, that we would get not wages. The wages of sin is death. The inheritance of Christ is all the riches of heaven so that we don't lose wealth, but that we might gain it. Let's pray as we come to the table. Uh, Lord, thank you, Jesus, that you are such a great Savior. Man, in 2022 in America, what a joy it is to hear that we don't have to sing for our supper, that our worth, our life is not anchored in our labors. And Lord, you've been gracious to give us vocations and labors, and, and, and some of us have reaped great rewards from that. There's nothing wrong with that, but Lord, that doesn't get us into the kingdom. Repentance and faith in our Savior gets us into the kingdom, and, that, and the riches on offer there, we will look back on one day at whatever we've attained in this life, and we will see, I think as Paul got a vision of, that it was just a pile of dirty rags compared to what's on offer in you. And so, Lord, we want to... Um, Receive that afresh for those of us who put our faith in you. Lord, for those of us who don't know you by faith, uh, Lord, would we turn from the center, which is telling us it's giving us life and is only using us as its host, so that, Jesus, you would take up residence and sit on the throne of our heart and that we would enter the kingdom. Uh, Lord, this table is a great anticipation of that. This is an anticipation of the feast where we will sit with you at the head of the table where all the tears will be dried, where the labors will be over, where we will come into the fullness and um, weep no more and feast on the richest affair with our Savior and our King. Lord, we come to the table this morning anticipating that, remembering that the work is finished and it is ours simply to receive from you good things. So help us to do that as we come. In Jesus' name, amen.